Hello and welcome to the Teach Me in 20 podcast, the podcast where everyone has a story to share and the lessons they've learnt along the way. Each week, I'll sit down and have a conversation with my guest, hear about their life, their work, and learn from their experience. It's all about getting out and meeting people, because even a brief conversation can give you something worthwhile. I'm Karis Ryan, your host, and this is Teach Me in 20, featuring this week, Elena Thurston. Elena Joy Thurston, welcome on. Thank you so much. So excited to be here. This is going to be great. Yeah. So I guess you sort of encapsulate that life 2.0 is okay. A lot of people have changes in their life and there's that uncertainty and you sort of show that it's okay and you can get out of it. Can you tell everyone sort of listening what sort of your life was and sort of what that change then led to? Yeah. So I think all of us go through life transitions multiple times through our lives, right? Like we go from high school student to the next part of our life or graduating college and then entering the workforce really for the first time, right? Or it can be having your first baby or having your first baby go off to college, which I recently did. And that was like a mind blowing experience. (laughs) Um, Or it can be like quitting your corporate job and starting your own business, right? Like we go through these times where we have these labels that we were, we made our identity out of, but when we go through a transition and we lose those labels, we start to really question who we are. And oftentimes those are the exact same scenarios where we need to make life-changing decisions. (laughs) Like where are we going to work or what kind of business are we going to start, right? So like really big choices are having to be made at a time when we just don't feel like we have a solid sense of who we are. So that's kind of what I what I went through and, and now I try to teach what I learned to people. So in summary, what I went through was that I had joined the Mormon church and I was a very active part of it. And I was married for 17 years and I had my four beautiful children. And then I realized I was a lesbian <laughs> and realized, oh, this isn't going to work. <laughs> so <laughs> I lost all my labels except for mom, but pretty much all of my labels were gone. And I really was questioning who am I and what am I doing and how did I get here and where am I going? Right? Like kind of a big, a big questioning time in my life. So that's kind of, and, and I've been able to successfully navigate it, but many people don't. Um, and so that's kind of what I do in my work is that I help people use self-awareness and mindfulness to solidify their identity and move forward with their life. Yeah. yeah. We're going to chat more about that in a, later on, but I guess first, how does that, because when you're so involved in the church, you've talked about, you know, you were teaching your kids that homosexuality was wrong. Yeah. And then how does that shift change in that you realized I'm a part of this community? Right. <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't come quickly. (laughs) So one of the things I realized is that when we have judgment in our heads, um, we can cover certain aspects of what we're thinking about or what we're feeling with like a blanket of shame. Like, for example, I knew at one point in my early thirties that I did not like my life. And yet I was so ashamed of that feeling and that thought because I knew I had a really blessed, privileged life. 
you know, I was a stay-at-home mom in a beautiful suburban neighborhood. I drove the minivan. This the streets were lined with trees. There was literally a white picket fence going around the neighborhood. Like I lived a very blessed life. And so to think about the fact that I didn't like my life, I was so ashamed of that. Yeah. I, I should have only had gratitude for my life. That's what, what I was thinking. Right. And so I just put a blanket over that and ignored it. Basically wouldn't admit to myself that I didn't like my life. That's not a great way to move through life. <laughs> Because you tend to miss really big things about yourself, like the fact that you're not attracted to men. (laughs) It's a big one. (laughs) Right? So yeah, so I was at a point where I really loved the feedback of knowing, one, I was a good person, and two, that God loved me. And because I found the church at such an easy early age, such a young age, I I chose to be baptized when I was 16 years old. I had come from kind of a crazy family, like many of us do, but when you're 16, you think you're the only one with a crazy family, right? And so I had joined this church because I really loved the framework of, okay, you're going to be a woman and you're going to be a mom and this is going to be your role and you're going to be able to marry someone who's learned his role his entire life. And so it felt like a guarantee. Like if I go in here and check all these boxes, I know I'm going to have a healthy, happy, functional family. Right. And a bit of stability and what to expect. Yeah. So I was really good at checking off all those boxes (laughs) every day. (laughs) Hey, and there's nothing wrong with having a minivan. <laughs> right? Exactly, right? There might be something wrong with teaching your 12-year-old boy that if he masturbates, he's going to be gay. Yeah, right. Like, okay. That was me, right? Yeah. Because I was really trying to check those boxes. I was really trying to make sure that God felt like I was a good parent. And right. and I don't do anything half-assed. <laughs> like I yeah. do everything whole-assed, so I went all the way. So yeah, so I was I was teaching my children that and covering up the things that I was ashamed of, right? And not acknowledging them and not processing them. Um, there's actually a phrase in the church that when an issue comes up, usually with church history or current church stuff, whatever it is, if, if an issue comes up that you don't agree with and you don't understand and you can't resolve it, the phrase is put it on a shelf, You put it on a shelf and then after you die, God will explain why it had to be that way. So you don't need to figure it out now. Just put it on a shelf and you do that enough and the shelf eventually breaks. Yeah. And so my mental shelf broke before my religious one did, um, kind of cause my body kind of forced it. Like I started feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression and had no idea why. (laughs) Heaven Mm. forbid I actually look at myself. So I, in an effort to deal with those, actually not to deal, in an effort to ignore those, I started going to a gym six days a week. I started running six days a week and I still had too much time on my hands because those thoughts were in my head and I didn't like them. And so I picked up another hobby, which was fly fishing and I loved it. And in that, um, you know, when you're fly fishing, you're standing in a river 
which is so healing in and of itself, but you're standing in a river and you're making these casts with the fly rod and you have to be so present. You cannot be thinking about, did you read your scriptures that morning? And did you have family prayer that morning? Like you have to be present. Otherwise you can't do a dang thing. So I started to realize in those moments that I could be so present and embodied in my body and it was okay. It had always felt really unsafe because um, the mortal body in in the church is considered like uh, less than. It's considered unworthy. It's considered of the physical world. It's not like God, right? And so for me, my body became a really unsafe place to be for probably for many reasons, not just the religious reasons. And But being in that river and making those casts and feeling so grounded and centered, I realized it was okay. It was okay to be in my body. And so at that point, I'm 37 years old. I'm fly fishing every chance I can get. And I have a good friend who's teaching me. She knows all the ropes and she's great to hang out with. And we become really close. She's never been married and never had kids. And so it was just this really great friendship. And, and then in one evening, it switched and I realized, oh dear, I am really attracted to her and this isn't okay on like so many levels, right? There's, of course, there's the religious level. There's the fact that I am married, right? There's, but there was also the fact that my anxiety, my depression was so rampant at the time that it felt like and I think parents of teenagers would really get this. I was very much like a 17-year-old mentality at the time. It felt like she was my only happiness. She was my only source of love. Now, that wasn't true. That wasn't reality. But that's what it felt like because of where I was with my mental health. So the desperation was intense because I didn't think she'd ever be attracted to me. So there was, if I said anything to her, she'd be gone, right? Like way gone. And I would lose that source of love and happiness. So I just went into self-destruct mode, basically. Again, so ashamed of what I was feeling and so scared of everything that I could lose. My family, my place in heaven, my best friend, you know, there there was too much at stake. And so I did everything I could to not feel that way. I would go on runs. Sorry, I'm just rambling. No, I, I would not, okay. like, I'm not butting in because I'm actually really enthralled by it all. So continue. <laughs> I have questions, but I'm waiting. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so I would go on runs and tell myself, you're not going to stop until you don't feel this way anymore. And I would go eight miles and 10 miles and 13 miles and my toes would be bloody. And I would just keep going because I, this attraction to her was bigger and stronger than anything I had ever felt. Um, and it didn't work, you know, beating myself like that up like that didn't work. And so I enrolled myself. A friend said, oh, because um, at this point it was my anxiety and depression was kind of out of control. And I was reaching out to people I trusted for help. And all the people that I knew and trusted were all Mormon. And um, a friend said, oh, there's a guy that can fix that. He can, he can help you out with that. He's kind of like a counselor. You should go see him. So I showed up and he was like, yeah, I, I fix this all the time. 
um, something happened to you in your childhood that made you think that you're attracted to women. And all we have to do is go back in your memories and find that and heal that. And then you won't be attracted to women anymore and you can have your life back. And boy, that sounded good. <laughs> so this was a, the, you know, conversion therapy, mm-hmm. pray, pray the gay away as some people call it. Right. Yeah. So um, we define conversion therapy as any therapy whose goal is to suppress the same sex attraction and result in heteronormative attraction. And there's a big spectrum on that. You know, on one side of the spectrum, you have very physically invasive. Um, It could be electroshock, which really popular right now is at the camps for the kids and the young adults. They'll force them to watch homoerotic images and then force them to take like a charcoal drink that will make them vomit Mm. so that they can create that mind-body connection, right? It's like pseudoscience. Like, yes, mind-body connections work, but you're using it for evil. (laughs) But couching it in, we're helping you. You're broken and we're going to fix you. And that's the other end of conversion therapy is anyone saying to you, yeah, there's something broken with you, but I can fix it. I can fix it if you pay me money or donate money to my church or whatever it is, I'm going to fix this for you. I I have the knowledge and you don't, and I'm going to fix this for you. Right. So So, had you reached out to some of your Mormon friends and sort of talked about what you were feeling towards mm -hmm. opposite sex? Uh, Okay. Same sex. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, at that point, my husband had found out about this attraction and, um, I was going through the repentance process with my Mormon bishop. He's like the leader of your local congregation. And um, I was trying to fix it. I was trying to make it go away. You know, divorce wasn't an option at the time. To me, divorce was failure. My parents had gotten divorced when I was very young. And and I had promised myself I would never do that to my children. And so, yeah. So I started this therapy. It was four days a week, two hours a day. Wow. at a rate of $270 a day. Wow. And he told me, if you work hard, it'll only be like a month or two. If you come four days a week, do all your homework, do all the journaling, it should only be like a month or two. We'll find the event and we'll heal it and we'll get you back on track. And um, months went by and it didn't work. And um, that's part of this, the horribleness of conversion therapy is that it doesn't work but and so what that communicates to you is that you're so broken you are so deviant that you can't be fixed because here's this expert who's saying he can fix you and you're working so damn hard to not have this be a part of you anymore and it never, it doesn't work. And so hence there is a slide into suicidal ideation because of that. So with conversion therapy, 57% of people who go through it end up suicidal. Of course, I didn't know that. My husband didn't know that who was paying for all of this. Right. And even my Bishop did not know that, that that statistic was out there because people don't talk about it. (laughs) Mm. Right. So yeah. It didn't work. And, um, the breath happened, because, right. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> but it, it seems like as well, you're made to feel like a failure as well. And mm-hmm. yet it's just who you are. Like it's the thing I was reading is it's not a mental health 
issue. So, <laughs> you know, why are people going through this? And yeah, it's, so how did you feel? I mean, you've talked about it briefly, but yeah, how did you go from there? I mean, that still that's, I guess you had that struggle of self-identity and now you had this on top of it of, you know, I've tried to keep my life and mm-hmm. you know, everything I love about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So basically it ended up that I wanted to take my life and I had a plan and um, I, I was fighting against the plan. You know, it was, it was literally voices in my head saying, uh, you don't deserve your children. Your children would be better off without you. Here's how you need to kill yourself. Like it was very, very, very clear. And I don't think I will ever forget that because of the clarity and because it was constantly in my head. And so we got to a point where my husband walked in one Monday morning and said, I want a divorce. And I was like, now this is six months into conversion therapy. Okay. And I was like, no, 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 no. I am working so hard to save this marriage. Like, a divorce is not an option. So I freaked out and I ended up calling my very best friend who had also known my husband since like high school. And so she was like really good at helping us communicate, especially in those sticky situations. Right. And, um, she came over cause he was ready. He was done. And he was saying to us, to me, you're not even trying anymore. You're not reading your scriptures. You're not praying. You're not meeting with the bishop. You're not even trying. So I want a divorce. And it just fell out of my mouth. My response was, I can't. There's no room in my head to read scriptures or pray or talk to the bishop. I'm literally spending every day trying to ignore the voices in my head and stay alive. And my friend turned to me and said, you're hearing voices? And I said, yes. And they're telling me exactly what to do. And I'm trying really hard to not do it. And she turned to my husband and said, divorce is off the table. We're dealing with a mental health issue. We need to get her help right now. Which was amazing because by that afternoon, I was in with a real psychiatrist receiving real help which is the privilege of my life that I was leading. You know, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people out there that can't access that kind of help. Yeah. So, and once I was there, oh man, the relief. I mean, it was just this little old woman, (laughs) but like 15 minutes into our two hour conversation, she was like, you're going to get help. You're not leaving here without prescriptions and making sure that you're safe you're going to be okay. And that was like the biggest load off my shoulders. Cause I really felt like when I walked into that office, I was going to have to prove that I needed help. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I was going to have to prove that even though it's all in my head and you can't see an injury, like a broken leg or something, I really am struggling and I really need your help. And I think she sensed that because like I said, within the first 15 minutes, she was like, no, 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 calm down. <laughs> I know you're struggling. You are. And we're going to fix this and it's going to be okay. Uh, and that was just so huge to hear. Um, so yeah, she released me that day with multiple medications and I slept for the first time in so long. 
I had been beating myself up for so long and anyone who lives in like a mixed orientation marriage knows that man that master bedroom that master bed like that's a sticky scary place to be there's so much emotion around it and so I just often didn't sleep or if I did sleep it wasn't good sleep right and so here I am actually sleeping and every time I'd wake up I would be able to connect the dots. I was able to see things more clearly. I was able to recognize patterns. And what was going on at the time was um, the Me Too movement and the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And we were hearing from all these celebrities and all these other women that they had been subject to an assault. And I had as well, and that's what had come up during these sessions with this quote-unquote therapist, and that's what he had blamed my same-sex attraction on. And so as I was listening to all these people talk about their assaults and what it was like to go through them and what it was like to heal from them, and we were seeing all these headlines, 75% of American women have been assaulted at some point in their life. I finally connected the dots and realized 75% of American women are not gay. Like nowhere close to that. Mm. Like 8% of my generation of the Gen Xers identify as LGBTQ. The numbers do not add up. And so that was a huge revelation for me (laughs) because I had spent decades believing the only reason that someone thinks they're attracted to the same sex is because something happened to them, whether it was trauma or a domineering mother or an absent father, right? We as a society can make up all these excuses why someone is different than us, other than the fact that different is okay. (laughs) So. Yeah. So that was a mind-blowing revelation. And that kind of started Life 2.0 because I became so grateful for my life. I realized how close I had come to not being here anymore. And I decided it's better for my kids to have a gay mom than a dead mom. Yeah, absolutely. And if what's going to keep me here is coming out to myself and to my community and to my family, I will do it. I will do whatever it takes to stay here and be with my children. Yeah. Oh, it's what a, uh, yeah, journey. I wanted to, I mean, going back to what you've just talked about, but the friend who you were Mm -hmm. going fly fishing with and did you make a move there? Like, did that, did you end up pulling the trigger? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a happy ending. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pretty. She, uh, we we currently live together. She's oh, fantastic! Friend. So yeah. th- that in itself, I feel people listening can relate to taking that leap. What what instigated finally? I mean, I'm sure seeing the psychologist helped um, maybe with that push, but making that move with her and finally re- sort of resolving it with your husband. Mm. Well, resolving it with my husband was a pretty long journey. I don't know. Um, Because he, like a lot of people in conservative religions, feel like you're choosing to be gay. And so for a husband, that meant I was choosing to leave him and not be a part of our marriage anymore. And that's horrible. You know, if, if I believed that, I would feel the exact same way. I don't blame him at all for being really bitter and angry 
um, because I would be the same way if I thought that he chose to just renege on our commitments to each other and our family. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, some people would argue that I did, you know, the church teaches that, um, if, if you have same sex attraction, you need to just not act on it. It's a temptation that you need to not act on. It's a cross to bear. That's kind of how it's phrased, right? Like Jesus bore his cross. You can bear your cross too. Yeah, that and also putting things on the shelf. It's not really a way of dealing with things, is it? It's just sort of masking it and everyone needs to just live this fake life. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, there's a Broadway musical called The Book of Mormon and it was written by people in Salt Lake and it's hysterical it goes way too far but it's hysterical and um there's the most famous song from that is called turn it off and it has this like little (laughs) melody turn it off and then you clap right and it's about turning off your emotions and turning off your temptations and turning off your doubts right so yeah that's a that's a running joke in our household (laughs) brilliant um also what homework were you given for conversion therapy and what we, and my last, yeah. yeah, and the whole journal stuff. Yeah, it was, it's funny, no one's asked that before. Um, it was a lot of regression work. And so his technique was that you would go in and he would lead you through a breathing technique that would like, I'm not going to say it was hypnosis, but yeah, your eyes were closed and you were laying back and you were thinking back to these memories and they become really vivid. You know, all of a sudden you remember like what you were wearing that day, what the other person was wearing that day, right? Like details that you don't normally remember in a story from your childhood. So that's what we did during the sessions. And then after for homework, it was a lot of (laughs) writing letters to my younger self. Um, finding these like key moments in my history and like writing a letter to who I was then, which isn't ineffective. Like I had a crazy childhood and I feel like I was able to resolve a lot of those issues. (laughs) I have a much better attitude towards my mother now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bonus. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah. So unfortunately I was a victim of an event when I was 15 years old And then I became a victim of that event again at age 37. And that, that was the unjust part of it. Is there, I mean, we've talked about the suicide ideation with people that Mm -hmm. have gone to conversion therapy and there isn't a lot of support out there at the moment. I mean, the fact that conversion therapy is still allowed um, is just ridiculous. What do you say to the younger people out there or even people that were like in your late thirties, like yourself, who are going through that change? What, you know, lessons have you learned that you can provide for them of being able to take that leap and also blocking out, you know, that the norm that they, the voices that they've had? Yeah. Um, So how I teach that concept is, you know, I tell people, your mind is like a garden. And when you were born, your parents took care of your garden for you, right? They planted ideas, thoughts, values inside this garden for you, right? And your community put in a few thoughts and ideas and sometimes thoughts and ideas snuck in under the fence from your neighbor, right? And so here you are as we grow and as we mature, 
it's our obligation, it's our duty to take over tending our garden. And so you're an adult when you are the one in charge of what am I going to plant? What am I going to take out? What am I going to get rid of? What am I going to nurture and give sunlight and, and water and air to, right? Maybe there's something that I want to put there just for the season and then it can go away, right? So it's taking that ownership of the ideals that are in your head. You might have, you probably have a sexuality story in your head of what sexuality means and how it affects you and how it affects other people. And that plant was put there a long time ago, right? When you were first born and you're an adult now and it's now your choice to decide if that sexuality story is staying, if it's true to you or if you need to plant something new in its place. Yeah. Yeah. What do you say? I mean, there has been attempts in Australia. Um, currently two states have banned conversion therapy, but what would you say to politicians and lawmakers who have the power to make a change? Mm -hmm. So I actually say this to them very often. <laughs> I say, I am from the Western United States, like the wild, wild West, right? We have a strong streak of independence. And if any government is going to try to tell me how I can help my child, no, <laughs> right? Like I know what's best for my child, not you. And yet we as a society choose to protect children when their parents refuse to. That's why we have child seatbelt laws. That's why we have child porn laws. And when you have a practice that creates a 57% chance of losing that child to suicide, you don't get that option anymore. That's not okay because we value our next generation too much to leave that to chance. I actually like when there are bans on the ballot and I go and I testify as to why we need it to pass because there's not a lot of survivors out there and there's even fewer survivors that can testify in public to their experience. And so I try to travel as much as I can to do that. And when I'm doing that, I try to make the point that the ban is most useful for educating people because I truly believe that if parents and spouses and religious leaders and teachers knew of the suicide rate, like if they had to sign off on that before they enrolled in a program, I really don't think they would do it. You'd hope not. And I think the demand would go away. Are your kids still a part of the Mormon religion? Mm. Well, they spend every other weekend with their dad and he takes them to church. Um, and my oldest is at BYU, which is the church's university in Utah. Okay. And so, are, you, are you still yeah. a part of the moment? No. I'm not. No. I mean, they made it real clear that if I was going to, quote, give in to that temptation, I could not be a full member. So I, if I go to church, which they're not going to, like, not let me in the building, right? I can go to a church building, but I'm not allowed to pray in public. I'm not allowed to take the sacrament. I'm not allowed to teach any, like, Sunday school classes. Like, I'm not allowed to be a part of the community. So do you still have a degree of faith, like, from that background of that religion? Or have you moved away um, from religion completely? Right. I feel like I'm an incredibly spiritual person now. Like I have a real incredible connection with God. And I know God loves me exactly as I am. 
And I never knew that before. I was always trying to prove my worthiness to God. And now I'm realizing God never asked me to prove my worthiness. <laughs> like God could care less. <laughs> you know, if God is the sun. I am the sunlight. And the sun's not going to hate his own sunlight, right? So, yes. Do I believe in the religion? Absolutely not. Do I believe in a divine power who loves each and every part of me? Absolutely. Okay. When yeah. you've described as well coming out to your kids as the hardest moment in your life, I mean, I'm sure that was really hard for them as well. How did they take that and did that? I mean, there's stories where kids detach from their parents, which is really quite sad. Um, the other way around, parents detach from the kids. So how did that go with them? How was their experience with that? It's kind of ever-changing. Um, you know, the actual coming out experience was not horrible. It was certainly not as horrible as I thought it was going to be. I saved that. Out of my entire transition, coming out to my children was like the last thing that I did. I was so scared. Um, that night, I was putting the girls to bed. My two younger ones are girls. And at the time, they were 8 and 12 and I, you know, we were cuddling before bed and stuff. And I said, Hey, you guys, you know, you know how daddy has a girlfriend and we're happy for him. Well, mommy has a girlfriend. And they were like, yeah, it's Kristen. She's a girl and she's your friend. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> go to bed. <laughs> Make this easier for me. <laughs> right? Um, they didn't really get it until they saw us like holding hands and cuddling and then you could see the wheels in their head kind of turning and then they were like oh, okay what's for dinner <laughs> they really don't care um, my boys were 13 and 15 at the time and they 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 took it well you know in fact they said yeah, we kind of figured. Okay. <laughs> I was like, why didn't you tell me? Like, because that would, what if we're wrong? That would be really awkward. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was really good. Um, Did any friends when you came out go, oh yeah, I picked that? No. Okay. No. Um, no, not, not one. So I've learned since then that if there are categories to lesbians, I am referred to as a femme lesbian or the colloquial term would be lipstick lesbian. Okay. And so basically I'm very straight passing, like no one looking at me unless they saw the 14 rainbows I put on every day. <laughs> they do not see me as a lesbian. Um, whereas there are other types of lesbians that I don't know, like whether it's their hair or the way they dressed or whatever it is, like people can pick up on it better, I guess. Yeah. So that wasn't my experience, but I have so many friends that when they came out to their community, people were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> and unfortunately, it's incredibly invalidating because they knew too, right? That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is I'm coming out to you. And this could drastically affect our relationship. And this is a very vulnerable moment for me. And I am really scared. So to, to have someone respond with, yeah, you didn't know? Of course you are, mm. is incredibly invalidating. Um, and so I've had to watch that 
via other people, but it hasn't happened to me. And you're now helping those that were in your situation. You've established the Pride and Joy Foundation. Can you tell us more about that, the work you're doing uh, and how it all came about? Absolutely. So basically, as I started waking up and realizing I was a part of a community that I had shunned my entire life, and I started trying to learn about it, I realized how high the suicide rate is in the LGBTQ population versus the straight population. It's more than twice as much in all realms, like looking at different generations, looking at different races, looking at different places where people live. It's always at least double when you compare LGBTQ to straight. And um, now that I knew what that was like, now that I knew what it was like to battle that voice and realizing, you know, when you hear of someone who has committed suicide, you think, why did they want to end their life so badly? And I realized coming through on the other side most of the time, it's not that they want to end their life. They want to stop the pain and they can't figure out any other way to stop the pain than by taking their own life. Unfortunately, and what was told to me at the time that saved my life. And so I say it every chance I can is you think taking your own life will stop the pain, but it doesn't, it just spreads it around. And, and that is reality. And so once I realized that reality of the risk that any LGBTQ person is under of suicide, then the foundation was born. And our goal is to decrease the rate of suicide and homelessness in the LGBTQ community. And we achieve that through teaching concepts like self-awareness to the community and to the allies that love them. Right. So that includes the families. and Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing. A lot of families they want to be able to communicate and understand it more, but they also don't know how. So that's how you guys come in as well. Yeah, exactly. So we host um, an online support group, which is so awesome. And it has everyone in it. You know, you have your mom of a 16 year old gay kid, right? And she's saying, we got to have the sex talk and I have no idea how to do that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then you have a gay couple with a brand new baby and they're saying, I got you, don't worry. I'll tell you exactly what to say and what not to say. But my baby has a diaper rash that I have no idea how to fix. And then she can be like, I got you, no problem, right? And then you have the allies, the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles and the teachers who didn't really ever consider themselves an ally. No one had ever taught them how to be an ally, but now all of a sudden there's this really important person in their life who has come out to them or who they suspect is going to come out to them at some point. And they want to learn how to be the best ally they can be. But where do you go to ask those weird, awkward questions without feeling like a total jerk? Well, those people can come into the community and ask those questions. And both those straight parents and those queer parents are there and ready to embrace them and answer questions without judging them. That's fantastic, Elena. What is the, where is that online community? Where can people find that? Oh, yeah, we have to have it on Facebook, which is kind of a bummer because Facebook is so negative these days. But it's truly the best inter- interface for groups, for support groups. Yeah. So that's what we're currently doing. And then as an organization, part of what we do is 
we go out to corporations and schools and organizations and we teach about LGBTQ issues. And we also specifically teach about suicide risk and awareness. We've developed a program a lot like CPR, where you can learn in an afternoon how to save someone's life if you have to. We teach ALP, which stands for Ask, Listen, and Prepare. And it's a very specific way of identifying risk, having conversation starters, knowing what to listen for, and then help knowing how to help them plan a, reco- a protection plan. And I have, I'm sure you've seen it, but have you had cases that you can talk about of meeting someone who's so against their child uh, or family member being a part of the gay community and then through your work and those conversations they've had that shift oh my gosh yes and that is the coolest part because I can get on LGBTQ podcasts all the time right but it's getting onto the mainstream podcast like this where I may I can I'm able to make a bigger difference because for example she actually lives in Australia um, there's this woman, her name is April Vokey, and she is a fly fisherman, but like the queen of fly fishing, like the Beyonce of fly fishing. Okay. And her podcast has been going forever. And we were lucky enough that she wanted to interview us, like both Kristen and I, because Kristen is a much better fly fisher than I am. And you should have seen Kristen's face. She was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking to April Vokey. But so maybe the week after that episode aired, I got and April got so many messages of guys that were like, yeah, I'm a self-proclaimed redneck. I've always thought queer people are the worst people on earth. And after listening to that episode, you've completely changed my mind. You've opened my eyes. Thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. Those messages were amazing to hear especially like one was a young dad with two daughters out of like Missouri or something and I just looked at his photo right his Facebook profile photo of him and his two girls and I just thought we just changed lives we have changed lives with that podcast it's so cool yeah and I guess it's also just showing that it's okay to change your opinions a lot of people really just want to die on that hill and it's just sort of, I guess, through your education as well. I don't know if there's any other way you can sort of talk to us of how you've sort of seen change happen, but just allowing those people to know that you can change. Um, your, you know, illustrate that perfectly with your whole life and backstory. But yeah, what do you say to people who, who are really rigid on their values and? Uh, how do you sort of get them to open up to being okay with a family member uh, being a part of the community and being okay for them to change their views? Yeah. So that process starts with the concept of self-awareness and we define that as the intentional observation of our thoughts and actions without judgment. And so as they start to practice that, they start to realize it becomes real clear, real quick how many judgy thoughts we have in our mind by default, right? We judge what we eat. We judge what we do. We judge where we drive. We judge every outfit we put on our bodies. (laughs) Like we judge so much about ourselves and then we start to realize how much we're judging others. And as we go through that parallel process, we start to realize that there are things about ourselves that we actually really like 
You know, like I really like that I take my coffee that way. Like it's little things like that, right? And as we get to know ourselves, literally our self-love increases and it becomes easier to accept and love other people. And it becomes easier to recognize, oh, that's not fact. That's my opinion. That's a judgment. What is the reality? I often teach that reality is like a, an Instagram photo right? You take a picture with your phone and that's reality. What you see is reality. But what we do as humans is we put a filter on top of it. And so now we've altered the data and it, it could look completely different like the Instagram filters do, right? And so when we are self-aware, we are taking that filter off and we're able to see reality is what it is. And that's when we have the eye-opening experiences of realizing, oh, the gay people aren't trying to take down society. (laughs) They're just trying to get married, (laughs) just like how I wanted to get married, right? And so uh, it it all comes down to judgment. And luckily, the process for that is very clear. We identify the judgment and then we let it go so that we can see what reality really is. Yeah. Elena, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Um, I feel like people are just going to be blown away by it and learn a lot. Um, Thank you and uh, all the best with the foundation. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. I appreciate it. And the fly fishing as well. Get back to get up there with April. Was it April? April, yep. (laughs) You can take her. You got this. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, make sure you rate and review it wherever you find your podcasts. Every review you make helps people find the Teach Me In 20 podcast. Also, if you want to keep the conversation going, be sure to join our Facebook group, the Teach Me In 20 podcast Facebook group. It's where you get to ask the questions. I'll see you next week.